The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sally. We were wondering, who, who could we give as many strange names to and who could crush it? And she did. Um, I know some of you are like, this is why I don't volunteer to read scripture because the passage has Nebo and Jericho and Naphtali and all. The only one I recognize is Dan. I mean, that sounds normal. Um, thank you for You did a marvelous job of that. But, you know, I recently uh, got a friend request um, um, or a follow request. I can't remember if it was Instagram or Facebook um, from actually uh, a, a person in my former life uh, when I was a youth pastor, a youth director years ago in Texas. And uh, when I saw it, I, I, it, man, it just transported me uh, back to a time where I was like, man, all the, you know, goofy things you think about. I don't know if any of you grew up doing youth group stuff, but like I have all those memories as a, not just a youth person, but a youth leader and, you know, there are even some memories I'm thinking, golly, and even with this person who sent me this request, it was kind of humbling because I, there are things I'm like, gosh, how did, how did they remember me? Uh, it's kind of my, uh, and very fearful in that way. Uh, but it was also kind of cathartic um, because I did have to kind of entertain the questions of like, what, what was my legacy there? You know, when I left uh, that youth ministry and that church and that city how was I remembered? You know, what are the things? And that's kind of a frightening question. Uh, I don't know if you ever ask people in your life that are really close to you, how do you see me? You know, 
or, or, or kind of look back even, how did you see me then? Um, that's kind of a scary thing because you start trying on things and you go, oh, but it's a really important question because those, those questions are not in a vacuum. Uh, that's actually a question of larger uh, thought. Uh, David Brooks, one of my favorite op-ed writers, he wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in it, kind of his basic premise is that there are kind of two kind of virtues in life. He says often that we in our current climate pursue what are called resume virtues. Uh, those are things like high test scores, achievement um, uh, professionally or personally, these achievements and goals. But but really, what, what we should be and what really strikes us and forms our characters, what we would long for is what are called eulogy virtues. In other words, what are the things that people would say in a, in a eulogy at our uh, funeral? He says, a eulogy virtues are the aspects of character that others praise when the person isn't around to hear it, such as humility, kindness, bravery. What do we really exalt? What do we really want to be known for? You know, and obviously his premise is what really forms character and what really lasts are those eulogy virtues. You know, as we've uh, gone through what's called this, the life of Moses, and we're ending today on that, and we're going to enter into the next kind of, uh, we've made kind of a two-parter here. The first part is the life of Moses, and we're going to look at the law of Moses, which is the Ten Commandments. We're ending with actually the death of Moses, his last kind of eulogy, so to speak. And uh, as, I, as you read this and heard about this, you know, Moses, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is really one of the most profound characters. Um, he is so well known in a number of faiths, and especially, you know, Judaism, Christianity. But as I was reading, even Jewish historians um, talking about Moses and his death and his lasting life, and one particular one that I, I enjoy, uh, Josephus, who even has... Um, historical evidence of, of the Lord Jesus, uh, writes that when Moses died, that not just the, the elders, he said it in this way, I'll, I'll probably butcher it. He said the, not only those who were elder, elderly uh, wept bitterly, but those who were young because they didn't get to encounter yet his virtue, you know, what his virtue was lasting. Moses is this grand character, probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest figure in uh, the Old Testament in terms of building on the people of God. But how, the question is, though, how will he be remembered? You know, this is kind of the last section. So, so the first five books of the Bible are considered the books of Moses. This is the last chapter of the, the fifth book in that, Deuteronomy. And you're like, we, I thought we were in Exodus. Yeah, well, this Deuteronomy, which is called, considered the second giving of the law, it's actually almost his sermons. He almost gives like two sermons in this book of Deuteronomy. And this is the last portion describing how his legacy is left. And he's left looking into the promised land that he will not be able to enter. And then it provides us, even at the end of these verses, the very end of Deuteronomy, that there was none like him at all. No prophet, none like him. Uh, a little bit kind of thinking of Joshua in that moment, like, yeah, he's right. I mean, gosh, wouldn't you hate to follow Moses in leading in this way? But how will he be remembered? How is Moses remembered? Is it by his astounding accomplishments, by, by actually being the one who, who, you know, 
was, was leading them through the Red Sea or striking a rock and water coming from it or, or manna from heaven, the, being the voice, the glowing face that we talked about, the, those kind of things that, that Moses, even going up on the mountain, coming down with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. I mean, those kind of things you think, wow, these are incredible accomplishments or is it something more? Is there something more? Because at the end of Moses' life, you see him longing and looking into the promised land, and yet he never actually gets to set foot in it. Moses himself, the leader who brought them to the edge of it. And then also, we see that there's no prophet like him. What is the legacy left? How is that connected? Or is it just a laundry list of things that he was able to do? So we're going to look at two things as we look at the end of Moses' life. We're going to look at the longing the longing we have, and we're going to look at the legacy we leave. The longing we have and the legacy we leave. You know, as, uh, this chapter begins, just 12 verses in this chapter. It begins really with a huge description of where Moses is standing. Where is he standing, right? And all these names that, that Sally was able to uh, recite. On top of Mount Pisgah, which is actually the tallest peak of a mountain range where God would bring him up and actually have him stand and begin counterclockwise looking at every, so from my vantage point, counterclockwise, your vantage point would be clockwise, but this direction left to right at all of this land surveyed, all the land that the Lord had promised that he was going to give. And why? What was this land? Well, in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, that first book, there is a promise given to a man named Abraham, and you even see it here where the Lord says it. He says, this is the land, right, verse 4, of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So he is up as high as possible and is able to see as much as he can all of what the Lord has promised. And this land that was promised went, went with Abraham, the first founding father with Abraham, way back when there was a promise given to him. And it was two parts of it. One was you're going to have a number of people that are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. You won't even be able to count them. And if you look at the passage and where they are, it's kind of like check. I mean, here's all millions of people coming out of Egypt, that the Lord has brought them out of slavery. Here, here are the people. They're all there. Check. The second promise, though, was the land. It was going to be an inheritance. It was going to be this place where they would be. And why land? Because the land was something that was not like what we would think of today as typically we think of like trusts or some IRA or something that we inherit that may be... Uh, you know, some sort of a retirement or it may be some sort of funding. Actually, for them, it was the land. And this was a gift. This was a gracious gift given to them, the people of God, that actually set them apart to find them. In fact, they were rootless and had no foundation. They were, they were wandering for years until they found this, until the Lord brought them to it. In fact, in some ways, you see this in the New Testament uh, when, uh, especially during the, the Passion Week, that week of Jesus' life from Palm Sunday to Easter, there's all these Jews from around the land and, and people who are converted to that, that who come into Jerusalem for a pilgrimage. And the reason they do is, 
It symbolized that wandering coming back to finding where the land was. And they came into Jerusalem to worship. And this was the crux of why, one reason why the Lord at that moment used that week to walk, to what? Go into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and subsequently go to his death on the cross. But that was a, a pinnacle moment because all of these people had gathered all around and it was a pilgrimage. That's what, what a pilgrimage is, right? We got the pilgrimage fest here, right? Uh, I don't know if you've been, it's fun, it's great. Uh, it's had its own issues, but where that language comes from is to like bring, how do we bring people from all over who recognize what it means to wander and long for a place to be rooted to find a place to be. It's to remind us of that. See, this is where the question enters. And see, he's standing on the edge and you get it and he's, it's like, but why doesn't, why doesn't he get, get to walk in? <laughs> why does the Lord say, you can see it, but you shall not go over there? Because there was one point before this where Moses showed disobedience. And he decided that he would lead out of his own strength, out of his own achievement, out of own what he could do. And the Lord at that moment said, you will lead the people which you will not enter. Harsh, difficult. And yet, here's the thing, he's standing. And what would it be like for him to have gone through all that? I mean, think about the Red Sea, 40 years growing up in Egypt, 40 years out, in, uh, out of Egypt being prepared by the Lord to lead them. And then another 40 years to lead them in the wilderness. 120 years, as you see, is, is how old he is. And man, I'd love this to be described in my eyesight and, and strength at 120 years. Undimmed and unabated as strength and vigor. And that's where he is. But it would be very hard. Think about, his, think about what he's taking in as he's looking from 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 right to left, like turning counterclockwise, watching and seeing the land and the Lord showing him that. The longings that come up and say, this is, this is the promised land, but will I ever reach it? Will I ever get in? Will I ever take hold of it? That rootless feeling, we, we know that. We know that on maybe smaller levels that really point to the larger taste of what we're really longing for. We've known that. I mean, gosh, you could cherry pick the easiest ones. Are we ever going to get it on this side of the pandemic? Am I ever going to get on the other side of, of my, my job loss? Am I ever going to get on the other side of this illness? Am I ever, you're, we peer and look down and say, there's got to be an end to it. And maybe even sometimes even see it and feel like we can never cross over. Are we ever going to get there? And all these tastes of it ultimately pointing to the eternal question, am I going to really reach heaven? I mean, is this... You know, I mean, we kind of move, we don't really talk about, it. that's one of those questions I remember when I was younger and people joked about when you're like on a chairlift skiing or you're stuck with somebody in an elevator and you go, so where are you going to go when you die? You know, that kind of like horrible thing. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, do we ever really entertain? We kind of are all the time, but we never really go there. It is an important question, no matter where we are in life, no matter how old we are, what is, what, where am I? Do I really know, how am I going to reach it? The longing we have that really is, is in us. And, and often, I think we've, we've even sheltered our heart from getting too hopeful by it and putting a little more hope in this world. There's a, 
uh, article put out years ago called uh, Hope for a Cynical Age. And what does that mean? And, and, and how we can look at what hope is for us as a well-wish. Oftentimes we think of, gosh, I hope I get there. I, I hope I do well on this test. Or I hope I, you know, am able to get that job. Or I hope I can move here. I hope my kids can go to this school. You know, it's kind of a wish you know, we're kind of maybe working towards it, but it's kind of this, we don't know really if it's secured or not. And so oftentimes we've used that and we, have, we live in such a cynical kind of culture, a very uh, sarcastic cynical culture. I'm, I'm a leading sarcastic person. But this article said it really interesting how we've watered it down. Our longings with, of hope with cynicism, whether we have a demand for it or we try and find it in brave acts, or we try and camp out hope in this world, try and, okay, maybe we have a longing for the next world. As C.S. Lewis says, those who, who really know, understand, and are willing to connect to this world have, are those who have their mind on the next, but sometimes we reverse that. We put our mind so much in this world and what we can create here that we start to lose and our eyes grow dim and our strength and our hope fades for what the next world really is. And that's actually what Christianity is talking about. It's not saying what's happening here is worthless. It's saying it's building towards something. This isn't the end here. Now, some have taken that and gone, well, this doesn't matter. All I need to think about is over there. Well, Moses couldn't do that. He was on this side. He couldn't cross over. How was it secured for him? How was it encouraged to him? And here's what's interesting about this. Most of us think, how cruel of God to bring him to the edge and to say, you've done all this, and then for him to be like, but you can't go in. Look at all you got. Now, that sounds like a mean parent saying, here's what you missed out on because you did wrong. You know what I mean? But God's not doing this. Actually, biblical hope is very different. And what's occurring in this passage is very different from what we see. See, in, in, in this old uh, ancient understanding, to look upon a land was actually a formal inspection of a legal transfer. So actually what Moses was doing was being brought up to legally inspect what was actually already his and yet he wouldn't acquire it yet. So different than him going up and saying, see what you're missing out on. It's more of, I'm going to bring you up so you know what is yours, even though you will not enter it yet. Secured. Different hope. See, most of the time when we talk about hope, like I said, it's a wish fulfillment. But the biblical hope is actually anchored in something that's already secured, already possessed, already given a legal transfer, and yet we don't have it yet. It's already there for us. See, the hope to, to be in the promised land was there. And it wasn't, it was just, it wasn't secured based on him getting in it. It was secured based on what the Lord gave to him. This is what theologians often talk about. And you may have heard this before. It's kind of a fun, it's actually when I say it, uh, oftentimes I go, this is like what so many theologians have said over the years, summed up in this, is the, called the already and the not yet. Now, if that doesn't categorize how we all feel often, the already, we already have this, but not yet fulfilled, right? 
So essentially, what is being said here is that, Moses, this is already yours. Different than other hopes of, oh, am I going to get it? Of typically we wish and hope, it's, and no, it's a not yet, it's a not yet. But actually, the already is there. The already of security of what is Moses. He's saying, this is yours. Legally, formally, you've inspected it. It is yours secured. But not yet will you enter it. Not yet will you actually have the fulfillment of its full possession in acquiring it. Is that not feel <laughs> like wandering in the wilderness? The tension and frustration of the longings we have on this side, looking over, saying, okay, am I going to get there? And we either do one of two things. We give up saying, man, I'm not going to get there, so I'm going to make this my promised land. Or we give up on this and say, I'm just going to check out. Or maybe it's not even real. Is it real? Listen to what Peter says about this. Peter, in the New Testament, listen to his language in spite of what we just read about Moses. Peter says this. He says, you have a possession that is undefiled. That is your, uh, your inheritance. Blessed, this is 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in a living hope. Right? We just sang that, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what, what, what did he say next? That's, that's, that's like the treatise of what does it mean to be a Christian? A living hope in Jesus Christ. But he says that he goes on to say, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's using promised land language. And how is it secured? It's secured in a living hope in someone who has come in flesh. What made, and we just saw, it was just um, ratified recently in our country, Juneteenth, which is such a, such a beautiful thing that, that uh, Juneteenth, the celebration um, of June 19th for African-American uh, brothers and sisters and that history. But one of the things that's so rich about um, African-American spirituals that have come up through the centuries and are even sung today in churches is there's such an emphasis on what's next. Uh, I mentioned him before, a friend of mine who is an incredible African-American pastor, retired in East Nashville that I work together with. He often says, we're not human beings, we're human becomings. <laughs> Where are we also going? But the, these spirituals that really put this emphasis, what is the promised land? Because under great oppression and suffering, and the, what hope, where do we have our hope? Is it a wish fulfillment that we hope to get out from underneath slavery and these type things? Or is there a reality that actually meets us in the oppression that is real? Singing those over and over and over to remind them, where is there hope that is not undefiled and does not fade, right? As it says, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. But the longings we have are to be met. They are real. We don't have to try and kill them or numb them, but they're real. And they point us to a reality of something being secured for us, a hope that is a real hope. 
You know, this passage not only talks about that longing that Moses had, but it actually talks about the legacy that he leaves because it's actually saying that Moses doesn't just stand on this side, but he's showing us how do we die well? It's like, whoa, okay. (laughs) But really, you know, the Bible spends a lot of time saying, if you want to understand how to live, you have to understand how to die. It's actually a really interesting concept. How do we die well? Teaches us how we live well. It's not a dark, like, twisted thing. It's actually, what's the legacy that we leave? Listen to what it says at the end here. It talks about Joshua being brought up as um, the next leader. And then in verse 10, it says, And there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and his servants, and all to all his land, and for all the mighty powers Uh, power and all great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. What kind of legacy will he leave? How do we die well? I don't know if you follow um, Tim Keller, who's a great um, pastor and leader in our uh, church and denomination. He actually uh, recently wrote another article in the Atlantic because he discovered that he's actually uh, diagnosed with cancer once again and is actually uh, pretty rough cancer. And he's um, I don't know if today he would consider it terminally ill, but the way he writes this article, he is. One of the things that he says in this article is to talk about what does it really mean for him to understand the gospel? He's, he's as a pastor, somebody who's talked about it for so long, what does it really mean for him to believe it and know it? <laughs> There's something for us. He says this in this article in The Atlantic. I would encourage everyone to read it. A significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. Before my diagnosis, I had seen this in people of many faiths. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. Cancer killed her God. But what would happen to me? I felt like the surgeon who is suddenly on the operating table. Would I be able to take my own advice? And he begins to walk through in this article of his own personal struggle with two things. He says, walking through, how do I really look again at the gospel with both my head and my heart? How do I look at it intellectually as well as emotionally? And he does by saying that what will the legacy I leave be something, again, he's tapping into what virtues? Are my resume virtues? Or is when you're faced with that actual question, are we really thinking about resume virtues or something else? Moses at this, if you look at this, it says there's none like him, unparalleled in prophetic voice. I mean, again, like, can you imagine that's being written? And then Joshua starts, and now I'm at the helm, you know. Uh, that's not the person you typically feel like, but, but God, what? He, he transfers that leadership onto Joshua. And here's what's interesting when you read this, and you read these things, basically three things here in verses 10 through 12. And if you look in them, you can say, this is a Pretty powerful, quick resume of Moses. You could read through all five, first five books, especially the first Exodus through Deuteronomy and see his work. 
But you see first that he's actually done the head work. If you read here in verses um, 11 and 12, it says, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and all in the land, and for all the mighty power and great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Moses is having to look, as he's looking at the promised land, to recall not, did I do well? Have I done great? Have I done good deeds? But... Is God who he says he is? The signs, the wonders, the the ways that God has actually worked to say he has worked not because I believed in it, but because he gave me faith through his work. Every part of his resume is attached to God's actual work. That he's worked in his life. He has done this physically, tangibly. Think about this, even in, the, in what we believe as Christians in terms of who Jesus is in, his, in the resurrection. The resurrection can't merely be something that makes us feel good. It has to attach even intellectually to our head to say, Jesus, the Lord God himself formed in Jesus, comes to live and die and rise again. Physically, tangibly, with coordinates on a map in order that we know our sin, which we feel in all reality is dealt with, so that we know when we ask the question and looking over into the promised land, am I secured, am I gonna get there? It's not based on a wish fulfillment, it's based on his work. His flesh tells us so. And by faith we trust that it can't be, and by faith Moses, even staring over and not being able to set his foot in there. He could see it, but he still had to trust by faith that one day he would cross over into it, into a promised land and into an inheritance that's undefiled and fades not away. We also had to do the heart work. Look at this. And this is said of Moses throughout. That there's not arisen a prophet since like Israel, uh, in Israel like Moses, Right? could stop there, but what does it say? Whom the Lord knew face to face. What it meant to say face to face is that he didn't just do works. He didn't just go to God and then transform. He actually met and had a relationship with the Lord. He experienced him. He didn't say, taste and see it. There's a a psalm that we sing sometimes, taste and see it, the Lord is good. He actually didn't just sing it and say, these are words we can take. He actually tasted the relationship with the Lord. He dug into his word. He, He met his character. How do we do that in the word of God? We do that by listening, by meeting with him, doing the heart work, because what lasts in this world? What lasts in this world? The relationship that we have with them. And what does he also give us? That we as eternal beings meet together. It's not just like us and God, it's us and God. That we meet with him face to face. And it'd be easy because we forget. It'd be very easy to say, how do we actually know? And it is, it's a hard question because we ask that all the time because we don't see Jesus right here. How do we know it's secured? We have a few things. One is we have a taste at this table of what is a reality that we will be at. This table 
provides a reminder of how it's secured. But how is it actually tangibly held on to? Paul in Ephesians would write something that was very profound about this. In, in this letter, at the very beginning, he has this, these incredible theological treatise kind of things, but he really, if you look at it, you can connect it to what we just talked about. He says, Ephesians 1, verse 11, in him we have been obtained, what is he saying? Not <clears throat> will obtain, obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. These are people who never saw Jesus. But when they believed in him, were sealed with him, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God. Do you hear his language? The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. If you actually open up what the Greek word for guarantee is, it's actually a real estate word. It actually means what they would do for real estate. They would go and they would dig up a bag of dirt and you would hold that dirt as the deposit, the guarantee of your possession of it. And so that when you went to actually purchase it, you'd set that bag down. And they would say, this is your land. He's saying the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself is your purchased guarantee, your deposit that you are secured with God above. He doesn't just say, if you believe enough. He doesn't just say, if you just taste this well. He says, I'm going to do something even greater. The third person of the Trinity, myself, I am going to be the guarantee and deposit. That when you taste this, it's not just some rich taste. It's actually the work of God reminding you and working in you to say, you are. Not just, maybe you're looking over that you're going to enter this land. But you know what? We may not be there yet, but it's already yours, and one day we will be in it. Remember the hope that is your secured deposit guaranteed in him. We don't trust in these elements, but by faith, the possession we have in it through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. As we do, we're going <clears> to <throat> recite an ancient creed. The Apostles' Creed, daughters and sons of God, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. It was on that night that Jesus was betrayed. 
that he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, all of you, and do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured out the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That is my blood of the new covenant, which means this is the new relationship you have with God through his blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And if he has come once and proven himself true as the prophet that even Moses wrote about, that longed for, that even in Deuteronomy 18, it says that Moses wrote about a prophet that was even more great than himself. He came and proved it. He will come again. And he will bring us all across that border into the promised land.